there's something always interesting about documentaries, right? The research that goes into it, even the searching out of, of eyewitness accounts always gives something a little bit of more credence to it. Love history, um, love the idea of, of archaeological studies, something, I don't even remember what we were watching or thinking about yesterday, uh, but just reminding, you know, if I could time travel into the past to just see aspects of, of Egypt or to see aspects of uh, the Roman Empire and its, and its peak and not just ruins of it that are a few thousand years old, it would be, it would just be absolutely amazing. Because that firsthand information is so important for things, the, the Gospels draw our attention. If you have even a, a basic knowledge of Bible trivia, it's not the, the upper levels, it's sort of the, the beginner levels that you hopefully would know that the four Gospel authors are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and... Yeah, good. All right, good. Phew, we got past that one. Uh, two of those are definite eyewitnesses. You know, Peter, uh, excuse me, Matthew and John were numbered among the 12 disciples or the 12 apostles. Uh, Mark was a close associate of Peter. Uh, we recognize Peter's name. My name's Peter. I'm not that Peter. Uh, I have some of the bad tendencies probably of that Peter, uh, but uh, hopefully the um, persistent faith of that Peter as well. Luke is one of the interesting accounts of this. Luke introduces his gospel account, uh, recognizing the fact he was not there, but that he made a thorough study and investigation. So you can imagine a first century um, documentarian traveling around, searching out people by name in different communities to say, I heard that you saw something. Can you tell me what that was? And then jotting those things down and making his record, saying that he was doing his best to follow all these things closely, to write an orderly account of that Theophilus, the person that he was writing for, may have certainty concerning the things that he had been taught. What things? Uh, well, things about Jesus. Jesus from Nazareth. And as he goes through, we read about Luke, we read about Jesus' birth narrative. We, uh, we heard about John the Baptist. We prayed through a prayer uh, thanks to God about John the Baptist and the mission that he had, the birth of Jesus. That's the other gathering that uh, we're most likely to attend, right? Christmas and Easter. Uh, so we know that that Luke passage, uh, the things that took place there, walks through the teachings of Jesus, walks through the miracles of Jesus, and gets us toward the end of this. As he makes his way to Jerusalem, he's rejected by the leadership of his own country. He's turned over to the Romans, and he is crucified. Luke gives the eyewitness account of this, providing names of different individuals who were there. We wonder who exactly it was that he researched, uh, that he met with. Leads us to, through Jesus' words, his offer uh, in mercy of the kingdom to one of the criminals that was crucified next to him, records his death, records people's reaction to his death. Even the centurion recognized that Jesus was innocent. He was not a typical criminal, and this man was a professional executioner. He knew something was different about Jesus. So did the, the crowds. They left lamenting and beating their chests. It was watched by those who had followed him from Galilee. That's Friday evening. Saturday, he's buried. A few, excuse me, Friday evening that he's buried. Sabbath on Saturday, they rested. 
And then we arrive at Luke chapter 24. That's our text for this morning. If you have a copy of God's Word, the Bible with you, please do turn to Luke chapter 24. Follow along as we, we work through this passage, and I want to draw out um, some, some amazing truths from this, but we want to walk through this passage first. So early Sunday morning, 2,000 years ago, we find ourselves arriving at the tomb. On the first day of the week, that's Sunday, early dawn, they, who is they? They are the women. We can kind of go back a few verses and see that there were women who had followed Jesus all the way from Galilee as he made his way um, up to Jerusalem geographically, because it was up on a height, it was on a mountain, uh, south, depending on how you want to look at it. So south, but up, a little bit different. But these women had followed, supported Jesus, supported his followers, and now wanted to offer one last, in their mind, one last um, show of affection and dedication to him to uh, prepare his body properly for for burial. He'd been taken down, wrapped quickly, and put away as the sun was setting. Uh, Because of the Jewish Sabbath, they weren't allowed to do that time of work. So they, they resume what they wanted to do on Friday night. They resume on Sunday morning. They went to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. It's a tomb carved into a rock. There's a, a low entrance that you'd have to kind of duck down or stoop down to get inside of. Uh, and then for obvious reasons, you want that covered, right? Like in our, our burial rituals have to do with dirt covering uh, the decomposing body. They would have had that door. They rolled a stone in front of it. A stone, we find out about guards that were there from other passages. Luke doesn't mention that. But when these women arrive and they want to pay homage, they want to show love to Jesus, by preparing his body for burial. They find the stone rolled away. The soldiers are not there. So they stoop down to look in. But when they went in to the tomb that just the third day before this, they had seen Jesus' body brought into and laid down. They watched him die. They watched his body be wrapped. They watched his body being taken to this tomb. And now they go, they look in, and they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Luke says that they were perplexed. It's a great word. Remember, I've been perplexed about something. They're like, I know I put my keys right here. I saw them. They're not there anymore. Take that, multiply it by where did the body go? thousand by a million they're perplexed about this and as they're thinking about it as they're looking as they're trying to talk to each other but are we at the wrong place no this is the right place i remember that this is the place we were just here two days ago what what is going on two men stood by them in dazzling apparel it doesn't mean that they were dressed sharply Uh, i wear a suit on uh, for weddings for funerals and for easter Uh, but this is not dazzling apparel Uh, it's just a regular suit there's something more going on than just a little bit of extra bleach in the wash for these guys robes we read this morning from john these were angels this was not just they looked clean it was they were actually shining light coming off the glory of god reflecting off of them uh, something that would cause you to be frightened and to bow your heads to the ground i love that every time an angel appears uh, people will wish that they were dead they fall down, you know, just like the little, the little cherub, fat babies floating around with wings. Oh, like, that's so cute. I don't know where anybody got that idea because uh, scripture never presents angels that way. They're not cute and cuddly. They're terrifying. That's biblical. 
These women were frightened. They bowed their faces to the ground. And the men, the angels, said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? This is how my imagination works. These angels are tasked, messengers of God, to go to the tomb where Jesus would have been and to announce his resurrection to anybody who would happen to come. Now, the angels have been paying careful attention to Jesus' ministry. They know who he is. They have heard what he has said. They've heard what he said repeatedly to his disciples. And so if angels are anything like us, they aren't. Just bear with me. They're thinking, that's a dumb assignment. Why would anybody go to the tomb? It's the third day. He's not going to be there. He told them on the third day that he's not going to be there. We'll go in joyful obedience, but it seems unnecessary. And so then they come, like, they are here. Like, what are you doing here? Like, that's what this question is. It's, it's not just like, it's not curiosity. There's a rebuke in this. This is kind of like, why isn't your room clean? Why, why do you seek the living among the dead? One of my favorite passages in Scripture, one of my favorite quotes that we have, he is not here, but has risen. Remember? Do you remember? You remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee? Guys, ladies, what are you doing here? Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men. That happened. Be crucified. It happened. And on the third day, rise. And that has happened now. And they remembered his words. Oh, yeah, he did say that. A lot. What? Why are we here? So they remember his words. They returned from the tomb. They told all these things to the 11, to all the rest. And I think, as I remember, you know, mentioned Luke is, uh, in our day, probably filming a documentary. He's writing a firsthand account. So I imagine that he spoke to Mary Magdalene. Maybe he spoke to Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, the other women with them to find out what, the, they, what they had seen and what they had said. They told these things to the apostles. The, these words seemed to the apostles an idle tale, a fable, a myth, a dream, an imagination. They did not believe them. Like, that's ridiculous. We watched him die. We watched him wrapped. We watched him buried. Dead people don't come back to life. It's over. We lost. It's done. Your hope is false. You're, you're, you're experiencing a delusion. But Peter needed to see for himself. Peter rose and ran to the tomb. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths that had been wrapped around Jesus by themselves. That which was, had been wrapped around a body are now just there. Cloths, yes. Body, no. It's confusing. He went home marveling at what had happened. Believing? Not quite there. Somewhere along with that same perplexed. He's per they were perplexed. Well, I don't get this. Peter is marveling at what had happened. Luke cuts to another scene now. 
That very day, Sunday, two of the disciples were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. We don't know exactly where this is, but as we think about all that had taken place, everybody's leaving their homes and has been following Jesus from all sorts of places. Many of them were from Galilee. Some were apparently from other places. Huge crowds were following everywhere that they went, had left their, uh, left their fields, blacksmiths, uh, bakers, fishermen, tax collectors, like, let's leave this behind because this man is bringing the kingdom. We're going to follow him wherever he goes. That's the best idea. So they had left their homes behind, and, and two of them apparently lived in Emmaus. I couldn't travel on Saturday. They couldn't travel on the Sabbath. So now on Sunday, they're like, you know, we got to get out of Jerusalem. Like, we, we don't want to be here anymore. They came after Jesus. Maybe they're going to come after us. It's like, it's done, and it's time to go home. So we'll go home. So they're traveling to Emmaus. They're on this journey. They were talking with each other about all these things that had happened, both the crucifixion and this report that had come from these women that we just talked about. While they were talking and discussing together, another figure just casually saunters up and joins them. Jesus himself. This is the first appearance that Luke gives to us. Two men just walking down the road, and then all of a sudden, just Jesus just comes, just walks alongside of them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. For some reason, God didn't want them to know what was going on. For their sake, for our sake, because Jesus had something that he wanted to say to them. He said to them, what's this conversation you are holding with each other as you walk? The sense of humor in this, it just abounds. It's like, oh, hey, so what are you guys talking about? I mean, he knew what was in their hearts. Because he's God, and he certainly knows now, oh, so what's, what's, been, uh, what's been going on? It's, it's like if I had uh, surprised the kids with something. I remember doing something when, uh, when they were little. Some of them might think it was still real, so uh, maybe we won't. But it had to do with stuffed animals that had played in their room and come to life while they were gone. And then it's like I come home, they come home while I'm gone. Uh, that, was, that was me, by the way, Elise. I'm, I'm sorry if, if that was... If that ruins something for your, your childhood. But uh, I was gone uh, when they came home. They come up into the room, enjoyed it. Leanne was kind enough to film everything that happened, so we have that reaction. And then I come home, just like, oh, anything happened in your, uh, in your room? Did you guys see anything? Anything at all? Dad, uh, this stuff, and they were reading it. Like, oh, really? Huh. Wonder how that happened. What's this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. One of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? I I love it. This is kind of like, oh, I I mean, tell me. (laughs) Did something happen? What was it? Love it. They said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, I wonder if his face is just like, go on, please. A man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Oh, yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back, saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb, and they found it just as the women said. I mean, can't believe women. That's the text. It's not me. But they believed that. 
That was the first century idea, just kind of like, oh, oh, well, you can't believe anything that women say. You know how they are. Like, well, I also know how men are. <laughs> Stubborn and stupid. At least the one that I see in the mirror on a daily basis. But, that, you know, nobody, nobody could find a body. Him they did not see. And he said to them, Jesus speaking, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the thing concerning himself. In my mind, that is the New Testament in summary. How many times people have said, oh, I wish that I could have heard that conversation, that I would understand how the, New, how the Old Testament points to Christ. And I would say, we have it. We have it in the New Testament. We are lacking nothing that we need for life and godliness in the word that he has given to us. Jesus interprets to them in all the scriptures the thing concerning himself. I bet they wished that it wasn't just seven miles from Jerusalem to Emmaus, but 27 miles, 77 miles, so that the conversation could have gone even longer. They drew near to the village to which they were going, and Jesus acted as if he was going farther. It's like, well, nice to meet you guys. I think I'll just, I'll just continue down the road. Just going to move on. And they're like, what? no, I, you, don't, don't do that. You know, come, come be with us. They urged him strongly, saying, stay with us. It's, it's toward evening. The day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, they, they sit down. They walk through the village, right? They walk through the village. They find the house. They go into the house. They've got to prepare food. Not like they just ordered takeout and went somewhere. There's time that's elapsing in these type of things. They're kneading bread. They're baking bread. They're waiting. Are they still talking about things? Are they asking him other questions about some of the passages that he, he reminded them, pointed to the Christ and the necessity of his suffering and the, the, the inevitability, the victory of his resurrection? What's that conversation as it continues to happen? And finally, the food is served. It's on the table. And they ask this one who's obviously skilled in understanding of Scripture, obviously reverent before God. It's like, will you, you're a teacher, obviously, will you pronounce the blessing over the food? So Jesus does. When he was at table with them, he took the bread, blessed the Lord who had given it, broke it, and gave it to them, and then their eyes were opened. That, that uh, veil of divine mystery that had been placed over them for the sake of this conversation, for the, the hours that had elapsed, you know, is there ever like, this guy looks familiar, or at least you know, his words, and it's like, this is amazing. It says that their hearts burned within them. It's just like, it's like, no, don't go somewhere else. Stay here tonight and this month and this year and never leave because I want to know more about the word as you explain it. Broke bread. Their eyes are open. Do they drop the food? Jesus? And then he disappears. He vanished from their sight. I mean, are they... So, so there could be the... the, the I'll say the cool, miraculous version of this, where Jesus is just like, poof, gone. We're talking about God in the flesh. No problem with that at all. It's like, well, explain that physically. Can I explain anything else that he did physically? We're talking about a supernatural 
intervention on these type of things. Or they could just be like, wow, and they're talking to each other and Jesus just gets up and walks out. Like there could be the natural version of it. There could be the supernatural version of it. Both are possible. Kind of like, I don't, I don't care. I like the poof. That's cool. But cool doesn't necessarily carry interpretive weight. So he could have just gotten up and left and they're still just like, that's great. And maybe they're running and trying to find other people. Jesus disappears. He leaves. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? <laughs> they rose, it was late. Remember, oh, it's too late for you to go on. It, it, like before the bread had baked, it was already too late for Jesus to go on. That seven miles was not too far post-dusk for them to run back to Jerusalem and tell the apostles what had taken place. They rose that same hour, returned to Jerusalem. They found the 11, those who were with them, gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon, Simon Peter. So there's another appearance that had taken place at some point in this same day. And then these two men told what had happened on the road, how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. They're talking about these things. Peter's talking about things. Maybe they're asking the women again what the angels had said. It's like, well, what did he tell you on the road? And, and how did you not recognize him? We know Jesus. I don't know how we didn't recognize him, but we walked forever and he was talking and we didn't get it. It's like, well, what did he say? He said this and somebody else interrupts. They have questions. There's all this talking happening, all this chaos. You're talking about these things. Maybe there's, you know, this, this is a, as a people group, they're not calm, right? Like, boisterous and uh, emotional and volume happening, right? So they're not just all like sitting in a circle taking their turn, okay? This is not just like a quiet, let's all just calm down and have a good discussion. So there's all of this happening. It's dark, so you just have a little bit of, of uh, oil lamp light that's happening. That's all that's illuminating these things. Maybe a few of them, plus they're still scared as to what else is going on. In the midst of this chaos, Jesus himself just stood among them. Jesus was there. Again, poof, maybe, that's cool. Or maybe it just opens the door, walks in. Hi, guys. What? Jesus stood among them and said to them, peace to you. Shalom. Hi. Greetings. They were startled. They were frightened, thought they saw a spirit. They thought he was a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? This is the third of those kind of rebukes. Didn't you know? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet. What was on his hands? What were on his feet? The nail holes from the crucifixion just a few days prior to this. See my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see a spirit, a ghost, a vision does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, they, he showed them his hands and, and his feet. Would you have reached out to touch him? Like wanting to believe but not wanting to lose the moment, reaching out and just wondering, am I going to, is my hand going to pass through or will there be skin that I come into contact with? Somebody did, right? Touched him and poked him and be grabbed at him. What? They still don't believe it. Maybe you're just a shell. This, this can't be. Showed them his hands, his feet. While they still disbelieved for joy, isn't that how we work? 
So you'd think, like, I'm really excited, so excited that I can't believe what's happening. They disbelieved. Like, how can you not believe? He's right here standing in front of you. Well, for joy, right? Like, excitement, high, sense, low. They disbelieved for joy. They were marveling. So he said to them, have you anything here to eat? Guys, I'm hungry. I had that bread, got from here to there. I'd really go for some fish. So they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he proved not only did he have an outward form, but he was a human. He was a true, resurrected human being. Just as he had slept and eaten and been able to die on the cross, so now he could eat. He was new, but he was still human. He ate a piece of broiled fish. He took it, he ate it before them. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you. He reminds them again, what I spoke to you while I was still with you before I died, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And you, you all in that room, right? You are witnesses to this. Don't just tell people ideas. Tell them that you've seen me. Tell them that you watched me die. Tell them that you saw me buried. Tell them that you have seen me alive. You can testify to this. You can give legal testimony, witness to these things. Eyewitnesses, just like Luke hunted down across the world to find, to interview, and to record for us. At the center of each one of these three movements that take us through uh, Luke 24 up to this point, there are only a few verses after that 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 move into another section— But at each of these three movements, as I read them this week, there's a statement that contains one important idea. Three movements, empty tomb, road to Emmaus, the appearance of Jerusalem. And each of the middle of these things, there's a statement that is made, first by the angel, then by Jesus, the other two. And right in the middle of each of those statements, focused in the point, I think, that Luke is trying to communicate, that God wants his people to know one important idea. See if we can catch this in these different verses. Verse 7 of Luke 24. Remember how he told you, this is the angels, remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. Then in the middle of the passage about the road to Emmaus, Jesus says to them, verse 26, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things? And enter into his glory. And then in that third movement, that third act, as it were, at the room in Jerusalem, Jesus says this, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Must. Necessary. Must. While they're worded differently, It's the same word originally, and they're communicating the same thing, the divine necessity of Christ's death and resurrection. By divine necessity, I also mean the inevitability of these things, or if I could make up a word, the mustness of them. 
Christ's death and resurrection and the divine necessity, the inevitability, the mustness, these things had to happen. They had to happen because they needed to happen and because they couldn't help but happen. They couldn't help but happen. Why? Why necessary? Why inevitable? Why the must? I think there are three reasons I want to highlight through these different texts. Christ's death and resurrection, they were necessary. Must, inevitable, divine necessity. They had to happen. They couldn't help but happen. Why? Three reasons. Christ's death and resurrection were necessary because of Christ's prophecies, because of God's promises, and because of God's purposes. And we'll go through these one by one. Christ's death and resurrection were necessary first because of Christ's prophecies. Luke, Matthew, Mark, John recorded the things that Jesus said. We're blessed by God to have some of the words and teachings of Christ recorded for us in the Gospels. And when you think about the things that Jesus taught, I wonder what are the things that pop into your mind. Uh, For our North Korean brothers and sisters, our brother Ken prayed through aspects of the Beatitudes today. That's certainly something that would pop into people's minds. But some of the most important things that Jesus said were the prophecies regarding what would happen to him in the future. Luke records some of these prophecies for us that I want to focus on. After feeding the 5,000, we're familiar with that story, right? Jesus fed 5,000 men plus wives and children. Jesus asked his disciples after this, who they say, who, who do you believe for me to be? Peter confesses, you are the Christ of God. He was right. And here's how Jesus responds to that correct confession. Luke chapter 9. You are the Christ of God, Peter said. And Jesus strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying this, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Soon after this, Jesus delivers a boy possessed by a demon that his disciples had been unable to cast out. Luke then writes, while they were all marveling at everything that he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them by God so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. That's Luke chapter 9, verses 43 to 45. So we're at two prophecies so far with specificity about what would happen to Jesus. And the third one just blows my mind. This is in Luke chapter 18. Jesus is fixedly making his way toward Jerusalem. He's not meandering. He's not wandering. I think one of the texts, maybe it's Mark or Matthew, but he set his face toward Jerusalem. This is where I'm going. This is where we're headed. He would not be dissuaded or it would not be swayed into another way. They're heading toward Jerusalem. A lot of things happen on the way. And in the midst of all this flurry of ministry activity, all sorts of different miracles, confrontations against leadership, all these things that are happening. In the midst of it, Jesus took his 12 disciples aside and he said to them, see, listen guys, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. 
and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. That's Luke chapter 18. And so we have very specific, unique records of at least three times where Jesus told his disciples ahead of time what would happen to him. He would suffer death at the hands of the Jewish leadership, and then on the third day, he would be raised from the dead. And on that third time in Luke chapter 18, the final time that he's spoken, very close to the actual events taking place, the specifics that he gave were astounding. This is not the speech was like, hey guys, you know, things might not go our way. Right? I just want you to be prepared that, like, we're in the balance here. You know, if the people back me up, then we can take over Rome and we'll be exalted. But if that doesn't happen, you know, they might turn on me. I don't, but, and, and I could die. That's not what he says. He gives incredible specifics. He's going to be delivered to the Gentiles. That's the Romans. Not only is he going to be rejected by the Jews, but he's going to be turned over to the Romans. He'll be mocked shamefully treated and spit upon. He will be flogged, which is the type of beating with that cat of nine tails that Jesus experienced. He would be killed by the Gentiles, which points to the fact that he would be crucified, which was a Roman execution, not stoned, which was a Jewish execution. When you read through different aspects of the Gospels, this was not the first time that somebody would try to kill Jesus. Every other time, let's, let's stone him for blasphemy but that's not what's going to happen to him. He's not going to be stoned. He's going to be crucified, right? I'm not going to show up in the temple. They're going to turn on me, and this time I won't escape. They're going to kill me. They're going to stone me. That's what you could expect. They had already tried to do that before, but that's not what would happen. He would be killed by the Gentiles by crucifixion. And then the fifth aspect of it, the most astounding, is the the prophecy of the resurrection on the third day. These are not vague general predictions. These are prophecies given with specifics that could normally only be given after the fact. Jesus is speaking about these things as if they had already taken place, not that they would take place. And that's because it was prophesied by someone who knew what must happen, who was sharing what was necessary and inevitable and certain because it was planned and ordained by God. Those things which Christ prophesied must happen, they happened. And they happened because it was the certain fulfillment of God's plan. So the divine necessity, the inevitability, the mustness of this comes from, first, Christ's prophecies himself. What he said must be fulfilled. He had a common theme in all of these different conversations in Luke chapter 24. Well, Luke 18, Luke 20, Luke 24, a number of different places. The common theme was that his resurrection, following his sufferings, were not just things that he knew would take place, not just things that he had prophesied, but they were all things that were written about in the scriptures. And because they were written about in the scriptures, they were therefore promised by God to have happened. See, Christ's death and resurrection were necessary because of Christ's prophecies. They were also necessary because of God's promises, which causes us to look back with Christ, with the disciples, into the Old Testament to see where exactly does this take place. This idea of Christ's death and resurrection being necessary because of God's promises, it reminds me of Paul's simple explanation of the gospel that he gives us in 1 Corinthians 15. I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel that I preached to you, 
the gospel which you received, the gospel in which you stand, the gospel by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And he tells them, I delivered you as of first importance. This is the message that I said, the most important thing that I've ever shared with you, that Christ died for our sins, you see it in bold, in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Or we could say, as God promised, as the Bible, what we would call the Old Testament, as the Bible said, it had to happen because God had said it would happen. Christ prophesied it in his ministry, but it already before that, there was a scriptural, biblical foundation for these taking place. And I think that passage, this one in 1 Corinthians 15, aligns so well with what Jesus said in Luke 24, 27, if you still have your Bible open, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted, oh, that's verse 27, I think I actually meant 44, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, there's echoes of these things in both of these passages, and then he interprets the things concerning himself. And so as we think about God's promises, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus in these aspects, I really, really hope that there's a question in your mind. Question is, where does the Old Testament promise these things? That was Jesus' argument, right? It had to happen because God had promised it to happen long ago through the law, through the prophets, through the writings. Where in the Old Testament does it speak of Christ's suffering and resurrection? If you've not read the Bible very much, you might just think that it's like all Bible stories or, or all just random teachings or all poems and mix the fact that it's a mix of genres that communicate amazing things in amazing different ways. A book of books, a book containing books, a book containing stories and prophecies and, and poems and letters, narratives, all sorts of different genres and styles. When we think about the scripture, we first think like, oh, oh, well, New Testament and Old Testament, those are the divisions. It's true. It's good. Oh, we think of the Old Testament be like, well, what are the divisions of that? They've got a Bible reading plan that kind of divides things up according to genre. I don't know what genres are. Like you go to a library, Dewey Decimal System, right? You got the fiction and the nonfiction. You got history. You've got... Uh, biographies, you've got all sorts of different genres of that. And so we might think of like, okay, well, you've got the, the history of God's people and you've got the poetry section, you've got the, the Psalms, that's part of it. You've got the, the prophets and then you've got the gospels and the New Testament and, and then you have the letters and you have Revelation and that's crazy to read. Got all these different sections. When the Jewish people thought about God's word, this is the division that they saw. It's actually, if you were to talk to a Jewish person about God's word, they obviously don't accept the New Testament, but they, have you ever heard them talking about the Tanakh? You ever heard that mentioned? Those are three letters, T-N-K, which stand for Torah, law. The N is Nevi'im, Nevi'im, prophets. If I mispronounced it, most of you don't know that anyway, that's fine. I, I very likely could have mispronounced it. And then the Kethuvim are the writings, so law, Prophets' writings, T-N-K, Tanakh. They make a word out of that. It's like an acronym. And that encompasses what we would call Genesis through Malachi. That is all of the Old Testament. It happens a number of different times. It happens twice in this. 
And when we think about Scripture, we need to understand this concept called progressive revelation. Right? We understand something that progresses over time, right? not a finished product. Like, you, you know, kids, the, the pizza might come to you in a box, but it, didn't, it wasn't always in that box, right? It was parts, and it was put together, and it was cooked. I like pizza. That's why I keep coming back to pizza illustrations, right? There's a progression of those type of things. Well, there's a progression of revelation that happens in God's word, an unfolding of God's plan over time. Now, we could misunderstand that and think that progressive revelation means that there's the forming of God's plan over time. Right? Like, well, what are you going to do this afternoon? Oh, I'm going to do this, and then probably maybe we'll do this, or well, I'm not really not sure what that is. So it's like, well, we'll see what happens. That's the, that's the forming of a plan. That's how our lives work. Kind of have an idea, and I don't know what we're going to do. But there's difference between that and the unfolding of a plan. God's plan for all of human history is an eternal plan. It includes his plan of redemption. We have all of God's word now, but he did not provide that word to his people all at once. He gradually revealed it over time, various people, various times, various places, various ways. But at every stage, all of it was pointing forward to Christ and our salvation through his suffering and resurrection. So these three categories, law and prophets and writings, are what Jesus is referencing when he says, everything written about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. In other words, he's saying throughout all the scriptures, things were written about me, through all of it, things that must be fulfilled and have now been fulfilled. I started a list, I think I got to probably a dozen or more passages that I wanted to share with you, but for your sake, I shrunk it to three. This is not nearly as fun. You're welcome, though. One sample passage from each of these of where in the Old Testament it points to Christ's suffering and to his resurrection from the law. I wanted to take us to Genesis 22. Genesis 22 is a story of Abraham. Abraham's an old man wanting to have a son, unable to have a son. 70 years old, 80 years old, 90 years old. God's made a promise to him that he's going to have a son by his wife who's 10 years younger than him. When he's 90, she's 80. And then finally, when he's 100 years old and she's 90 years old, I always think of you, Anne, 90 years old, gives birth to a son, makes his mom laugh, Isaac, laughter. This is the one, the one who'd been promised, the one who'd been delighted in, the one who'd been prayed for. Could there ever have been a father more excited to have a son than Abraham was to have Isaac, this is the fulfillment of God's promises. This is the fulfillment of my longings for a century. Any of you wanted anything for 100 years? And in Genesis 22, God calls on Abraham to take Isaac, his only son, the one whom he dearly loved. Those are God's words to Abraham. And offer him as a sacrifice to God on Mount Moriah. And then at the last moment before Abraham killed his son, God intervened and provided a ram for the sacrifice to take Isaac's place. And this is what the text says. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. We want to take that, right? The Lord provides. and Be like, the Lord will provide me with a car. Oh, the Lord will provide me with a better job. Oh, the Lord will provide me with health. Like He does that because he's free with his blessings and he's gracious to his people. 
as it is said on this day, on the mountain of the Lord, it shall be provided. Not a car, not a job, not health. But on the mountain of Calvary, the Lord provided a sacrifice on behalf of his people. His only dearly loved son. We want so little from God. He has provided salvation for us. A substitute sacrifice. Genesis 22 points us to Jesus. One of many passages in that law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The prophets also speak of the suffering and resurrection of Jesus. Isaiah chapter 53, who is this servant of the Lord, if not our Lord Jesus Christ? Here, a sample of some of these things. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Later, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his stripes, we are healed. Later, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief, but when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord that crushed him will now prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul... This crushed one who has borne transgressions and iniquities, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. You recognize that anguish and satisfaction are the opposite ends of that spectrum? Something's going to happen following this anguish. And by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many others to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. Did you hear that? Even though he would be crushed as he bore our iniquities, slaughtered as a lamb, he would still see the fruit of his work. This is not like a dying glimpse. He'll happen to see something before he leaves consciousness. No, he will see offspring, generations of those who would believe in him following it. This is the promise of Christ's resurrection. Resurrection after his death. A promise of victory over sin and death in the prophets centuries before it would take place. Isaiah 53 doesn't just tell us that Jesus would suffer. It says he would suffer and he would be victorious. The prophets speak of Christ's sufferings and his resurrection. And then from the writings or from the psalm, Psalm chapter 22, we're familiar maybe with Jesus' words in the Gospels of the things that he said on the cross. I wonder if we recognize that for many of these things, he's quoting aspects of Scripture. David, in Psalm 22, is writing about the emotional and physical dis distress that he had experienced at the hands of his enemies, some friends who had turned on him. And that distress finds its perfect fulfillment in Christ. The psalm starts off, Christ's words on the cross my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His opponent's words are echoed in Psalm 22 as well. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him, let God rescue him, for he delights in him. Oh, leave him alone on the cross. Let's see if Eloi, they thought Elijah, no, it was God, my God. Let's see if God comes to help him. Psalm 22. 
The Roman soldiers surrounded Jesus and sought to devour him like strong bulls, like roaring lions, like dogs, a term for Gentiles. Jesus' physical agony is also described in Psalm 22. What, a thousand years before this took place? I am poured out like water. All my bones are pulled out of joint. My heart is like wax melting within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. They have pierced my hands and feet. Psalm 22 says that. David wrote that because God was promising what would take place in this psalm among many other psalms. This is just a small sampling of what is promised about Christ throughout the Old Testament. All of the scriptures contain promises that point to Christ. Christ coming, Christ dying for our sins, rising from the dead. These things were of divine necessity. They had to happen because of God's promises. And the final reason for this mustness, this divine necessity, is because of God's purposes. God wasn't just like showing off with prophecies. Hey, this is what's going to happen to Jesus because I, I can show you. It wasn't an end in and of itself. Let me prove that I can tell the future by telling these things. That's not what God is doing. There's far more than that. And I think perhaps we see the divine necessity of Christ's suffering and resurrection most clearly when we think of God's purposes. So it was said that it would happen, but, but why? Like, what was the point of all of these things? And that's where fulfilling God's purposes, asking what What was God's purpose in sending Christ to earth and having planned that he would die and rise? What was God accomplishing? And I think among many things, there are two. Through Christ's death and resurrection, God would save his people. It had to happen because of the eternal purpose of God to save his people from their sins. So Christ had to die and had to rise. See, we sinful human beings needed a savior, so Christ became human to save us. Hebrews chapter 2, since the children share in flesh and blood, since we had flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. What are the ones that I want to save like? Flesh and blood, that's what I'm going to become, because that's the type of savior that they need. The punishment our sins deserved was death. The punishment your sins deserve is death. So, 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. We're human. He becomes human. We deserve to die. He dies. God fulfilling his purpose to save his people. We are justified or declared righteous, no longer guilty before God by faith in Christ's death and resurrection. Romans chapter 4, righteousness. This is what you need before God. Your good works aren't good enough. You know that they're not good enough. They're not good enough to make you feel good about yourself. They're not ever good enough for anybody else that's paying attention, and they're not good enough for God. Well, I came to church on Easter not good enough. I preached an hour-long Easter sermon. Not yet. Not good enough before God. I gave in the offering. I was baptized. I do this. I don't do that. Not good enough. Not righteous. It's a whole other concept of perfection that we do not reach. 
that you do not have on your own. By faith, it is given to you. Righteousness will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, delivered up for our trespasses, raised for our justification. And the salvation doesn't just stop at the cross and it doesn't just stop at the resurrection. It pushes us into eternity. Isaac already read this passage this morning, 1 Corinthians 15, that Christ's resurrection guarantees our resurrection. See, through Christ's death and resurrection, God would save his people. And through his death and resurrection also, this is the second purpose, God would glorify his son. Why did it have to happen? Well, we go to us first, right? We needed it. Well, we did need it. But we are not the ultimate reason. You know, everything is not actually about us. But I just think everything's about me. The Bible's about me, and you're here about me, and my family's here about me. Everything's about me. Like, no. You're like, no, it's not. You're ridiculous. Everything's about me. Right? That's why you think I'm wrong, because you want it to be about you. Well, you're wrong. It's not about you. And I'm wrong. It's not about me. It's all about Jesus. Christ's death and resurrection were necessary, inevitable, divine necessity. The mustness comes from the fact that God would glorify his son through his death and resurrection. We see the glory of Christ's perfect, sinless, righteous obedience to his father's will demonstrated in his death and resurrection. Hebrews chapter 2 We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. Why? Because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. It was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering had to happen because of God's purpose to show the glory of Jesus. And he did. He was also declared to be the Son of God by his resurrection. In Romans chapter 1, this is where Paul starts off talking about the gospel, third line or so, the gospel promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Hopefully that sounds familiar. We talked about that already today. The gospel concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And Jesus is exalted over all creation by his resurrection. This entire path of suffering and resurrection was necessary to put Jesus up in front of everyone and everything forever as the most glorious one. Philippians 2 walks us through this entire journey. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. The form of a servant means human. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. All of creation gathered together 
all of it. That means you. You are in this text, one way or another. You will gather, along with all of humanity, all angels, all demons, all creation, all gathered together with Jesus exalted, and you will confess Jesus Christ is Lord. Is this a chant, a chorus? What does this look like? What does this sound like? Just a deafening echo. The climax of all of creation and human history, the point of everything that we finally see and admit on bended knee, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Like, everything's leading to that. Roman Empire rises and falls. Egypt rose and fell, right? Caesar, put him to the side. Emperors, presidents, just let him go. You, me, we're nothing. It's going to come together with Jesus exalted. This was the point. His suffering and resurrection had to happen for this moment to take place. That the one who was God became human, obedient to the point of death, raised, ascended, and glorified, so that one day you and I and everyone else will say, yes, Jesus Christ is Lord. We glorify him. 2,000 years ago, Jesus of Nazareth was crucified and his body was laid in a tomb sealed by a large stone. On the morning of the third day after his death, the tomb that had been occupied by his dead body was found to be empty. Are you, like Christ's earliest followers on that first Easter, are you slow of heart to believe God's word about Christ's death and resurrection? Knowing Christ's own prophecies, why would you seek the living among the dead? Knowing God's promises and purposes, why why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts about these things? He is not here dead in a tomb. He is risen. His death, his resurrection were necessary for your salvation to be possible and guaranteed. If you will repent of your sins, if you will believe on the risen Lord Jesus Christ, you repent, believe in Christ, you will be saved. Father, thank you for Jesus, his prophecies, your promises, and your purposes, which, although we do not deserve, result in our salvation, unearned, utterly undeserved. We are utterly unworthy. Christ is worthy. We glorify Christ this Easter, not just by coming to a gathering, but by living now with a confession that he is Lord to your glory. Help us to see these things clearly. Um, Just as you can cover our understanding, you can uncover and give us eyes to see and ears to hear. So open our eyes to see the glory of Christ clearly revealed in your word to trust in his resurrection for our salvation. Amen.